This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Charles Kimball. Charles is the president, presidential professor and chair of the Department of Religious Studies at University of Oklahoma. He's got a new book out, Truth Over Fear, joining uh, the other works uh, where he's contributed to Sojourners, The Christian Century, and the LA Times. Dr. Kimball, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Andy. Now, before we get to the book, let's uh, take a little closer look at your story. You work closely with Congress and the State Department and the White House um, over the last 30 years as a connection to the Middle East. Tell us more about this experience. Well, I, when I finished uh, seminary, I went to Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville and then went on for doctoral work in comparative religion, world religions, specializing on uh, Islamic studies, Jewish-Christian Muslim relations. It was drawn very deeply into contemporary events in the Middle East. Uh, my wife and I lived in Cairo in 1977-78 as a part of my doctoral program. Uh, that happened to be the year that, uh, in October of that year, that Anwar Sadat stunned the world and went to Jerusalem and began what became the Camp David peace process. We were living in Egypt when that happened, uh, so I was drawn even more in. Uh, and then through a series of events of my involvement in the Middle East, uh, rather than going straight into a, a more academic career, uh, I was drawn into uh, working particularly with churches and served during the 80s as the director of the Middle East office for the National Council of Churches, where I coordinated the mission and service ministries of 42 denominations in their work in various parts of the Middle East, relief and development work, as well as uh, coordinating mission activities. And it was a time of great turmoil. The Iran-Iraq war was going then, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, multi-sided conflict in Lebanon and so forth. And I was one of the one of a handful of people that uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, religious leaders, as well as political leaders, uh, trusted as someone who could be a kind of go-between. Uh, and so I was able to you know, work with various communities, uh, particularly with the Christians in the Middle East as a sort of starting point, but work with various communities. And then back in the United States, I did a lot of work uh, in Congress, I actually founded an organization called Churches for Middle East Peace, which is still actually going strong today. Uh, and that was something that we started in the mid-1980s. 
Uh, so a good part of my job, too, was public policy advocacy, uh, trying to help people in the American Christian community understand more what we can be doing uh, as people of faith and goodwill to be facilitating the prospects for peace uh, when you have a number of tangled conflicts, some of which are still going, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict very much going. Um, and so that was a, a good portion of what I was doing as well. So there were different hats I was wearing from relief and development to the mission programs and projects working with the Middle Eastern Christians. There are 15 to 16 million Arabic-speaking Christians in the Middle East today still. Most people don't realize that there are more than twice as many Christians in the Middle East as there are Jews in Israel, uh, but they're only 7-8% of the population in the larger Arabic-speaking Muslim world, and they're not highly visible except occasionally when there's a persecution or you know, an attack on Christians or something like that. That'll get media attention. But otherwise, they're largely kind of out of view, mostly because these are Orthodox churches that don't get a lot of attention in the West. Uh, we don't know a lot about them generally. The Oriental Orthodox, they're called. Uh, that's the Coptic Christians, the Syrian Christians, Armenian Christians. Uh, those are the ones that are the dominant uh, forms of Christianity in the Middle East. Mm. Now, uh, from 1996 to 2008, you were the chair of the Department of Religion and Divinity School at Wake Forest University, one of CBF's partner schools. That means you were there during uh, 1999 founding of uh, the School of, of Divinity. What was that experience like? It was great. Actually, I was at Furman uh, in 1990. I went back into the full-time academic world at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. I had a wonderful experience there. It was a great school. Um, it was It's the sort of flagship Baptist school in South Carolina, historically. And then after six years, I was kind of lured away to Wake Forest to chair the Department of Religion and also help plan the uh, beginning of a divinity school three years later. So the, the founding dean was Bill Leonard, and Bill was hired at the same time I was. He actually was then appointed as a, as a faculty member in my department, in the Department of Religion. And I was then also in the Divinity School from the beginning as a professor of comparative religion, world religions. So it was a very um, exciting time. We, we got off to a good start, I think, and uh, as uh, started a Divinity School that's been uh, very successful in many ways, I think. Well, little known fact for those that don't know Bill Leonard, but for a lot of people in CBF life, Bill is just under, you know, the son of God. We Some of us do think that he could walk on water if, if he tried. Well, I've got some stories that could be, that could uh, put a dent in that, I think. But, uh, that's, <laughs> <laughs> but I won't say because he's got some stories about me that would uh, bring me down a notch or two as well. So, <laughs> uh, But no, I, Bill and I worked together very closely for the 12 years I was at Wake. And and I loved it there, and I would be there happily today, but was uh, coaxed back to my home state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma has uh, earned the nickname Texas Hat for some people, but I actually like to think of Oklahoma as the beautiful top hat trying to cover up Texas mullet. Um, but, but you are living in what is traditionally one of the most conservative states, um, yet you are broadening and progressing the worldview of students and colleagues in the state of Oklahoma. Tell us, tell us what that experience is like. Well, it's a, uh, you're right. Oklahoma is sort of traditionally considered one of the reddest states uh, today. That hasn't always been the history of Oklahoma. There are a lot of uh, 
the very progressive uh, people in Oklahoma historically, and even people elected to uh, public office. Um, but in the last 30 years or so, Oklahoma has become a very, very uh, traditional. It's, it's, it's one, a classic sort of flyover state where um, most uh, people on the Democratic side don't bother even visiting because they think you know, there's no there's no point. Uh, it's the one state, I think, in the country where uh, Obama did not win a single county in either of his elections. So I, I think that's we're the only state that had that distinction. So yes, it's it's very traditional, very conservative in many ways. But at the same time, uh, this is where I was born and raised. Uh, a lot of great people here, uh, a lot of, I think, well-intentioned people. Uh, when it comes to trying to understand more about other religious traditions and broadening one's view uh, and living out you know, the biblical mandates to uh, love God and love your neighbor, uh, treat other people the way you'd like to be treated, and so forth, uh, there's a lot more openness, I think, than most people imagine. And so part of what I do is I speak in a lot of churches and do a lot of public lectures and during settings, do a lot of things with the leading imam in the state as well, as well as some rabbis, uh, to try and model uh, what interfaith understanding cooperation can look like. And I find there's a lot of receptivity, even in, in some of the most conservative circles, uh, to that sort of approach. You don't have to water down what you believe to the lowest common denominator. In fact, interfaith dialogue, when it's genuine and built on trust, uh, it should be focused on things that are absolutely the most important to the people engaged in the dialogue. But you also need to be willing to listen as well as speak what's important to you, listen to what's important to other people, and engage them as human beings. And I think there, there's a lot of people that, you know, it's too easy to character characterize or have a caricature of conservative, quote unquote, conservative people religiously and politically. Uh, there's a lot of goodwill in people, all, I think, all across the political spectrum when it comes to these sort of issues. Well, certainly myself. I mean, we live in Louisiana, which is, um, you know, in many regards, um, you know, considered to be kind of deep south. Um, and yet our church um, is a group of moderate to progressives. We also have some folks that are, are conservatives. So we try to think of ourselves as being a theologically diverse congregation. But certainly, you know, one of the primary reasons I ask that question is because a lot of our ministers um, listening um, tend to work in churches that are not necessarily in the same theological place that they're in. And so I wonder if you might speak some wisdom into how... Um, you know, our theology and how we um, minister and lead to people who maybe are not in the same place or being in places where uh, the ideas that are being presented are not necessarily accepted as, uh, as the norm. I think there are a lot of ways that uh, certainly in the last 40 or 50 years, uh, we've seen some pretty significant changes uh, in, and let's focus on the Protestant Christian community in, in the United States, let's say. Um, I remember in 1975, for example, uh, I was starting my doctoral program. That was the first year that the Episcopalians ordained women, and that was a huge deal. Uh, well, they've since had Episcopal bishops who were the presiding, they have a woman who was the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. Since then, over half the women, half the students in a seminary training to be Methodist or Presbyterians today are women. Um, pretty dramatic changes uh, when you think about it, and when you look at the long sort of course of church history. 
or you look at an issue like slavery, uh, one of the painful things that I did, and you probably did too, uh, going back and reading many of the sermons from North Carolina and South Carolina preachers in the, the 19th century, uh, is pretty awkward these days when you read and there are biblical justifications for slavery and there are roots that they can draw upon. But we've learned uh, some things. We've The Bible hasn't changed, but our the way we interpret and understand overriding issues uh, enables us to interpret uh, the Bible in a way that is, we think, more enlightened when it comes to the equality of people uh, than was the case before. So I begin by saying, you know, we're always in the process of growing, of learning, sometimes unlearning things we know. Uh, and when it comes to interfaith relations, uh, there's a great deal that we need to know. We should begin with a thoughtful approach to education, to not be perpetrating misinformation, miscommunication, misrepresenting people, uh, but try to understand them accurately. It doesn't mean you have to agree theologically. Uh, with with other religious traditions, but try to understand them. I, I use this example uh, with people. I find it very effective. Uh, I say, imagine to a group of Christians, imagine if we were in Bangladesh or Pakistan, say, and, and I'm a Muslim and you're all Muslims and you don't know very much about Christianity, but I'm going to be offering, you know, a five-week course or a six-week course on the basics of Christianity. Now hold that image for a moment. Come back here now to us. What would we hope that that person would be saying about Christianity? We would hope that he or she would be presenting an image that we would generally recognize. We know Christianity is very diverse, um, you know, we're not, depending on who you're talking about, whether it's Quakers or Episcopalians or Roman Catholics or Russian Orthodox or Snake Handling Pentecostals and Appalachian. There's a, quite a range there of, of what Christianity is to different people. But we would hope that the presentation would be representative of what most Christians would say, yeah, that, that gets at what we think is sort of bedrock uh, components of the Christian faith, uh, as opposed to somebody who was just saying, you know, look at these pictures from Abu Ghraib, and here are some stories of flushing Qurans down the toilet uh, in Guantanamo, and, you know, here's pictures of the IRA putting bombs in marketplaces in London, and, you know, you go down, start going down the list of Westboro Baptist Church or the KKK, or people marching with turkey, you know, with tiki torches in Charlottesville. All of those things I just mentioned are part of the Christian tradition, and they really happen. But most of us know that those are not representative of the way most Christians understand their faith and live it out. So how do we break through? And that's a big part of the challenge, and part of what I'm uh, doing with this new book is really saying the vast, vast majority of Muslims are as horrified and offended by the actions of violent extremists, as most Christians would be by the people in Westboro Baptist Church or people marching in, in Charlottesville saying Jews do not represent us. We can't ignore that that's part of the picture, but we know enough about Christianity to see that and put it in its context as an extreme uh, version that most of us reject. What we do need to do is understand uh, who our neighbor is and what they, what they believe and look for ways to live together respectfully if we really believe in freedom of religion. Uh, so that, again, you don't have to agree theologically. It doesn't mean you have to say, okay, everybody's got on the same page, but try to be respectful in our ability to understand and engage. And, and I would, one of the things that I try to appeal to, and I think this really hits home for a lot of people, is to realize that 
you know, this isn't just a global issue. This is a local issue. Any city in the United States today that has 75 or 100,000 people is literally a microcosm of the whole world. You can find any kind of Hindu, Jew, Muslim, Christian, Sikh, um, you know, go down the list, uh, Taoist, Buddhist, Hindu, etc., cetera, uh, Native American practitioner present in that community. Uh, these are the families and kids that our kids go to school with. These are people who are dating our children. These are when you go to a PTA meeting, it's going to be a religiously mixed uh, meeting. Um, so just to function in society, especially in a country like the United States, where we affirm freedom of religion and free from government imposed religion, uh, we need to understand more about who our neighbors are, how they see the world, and how we can live together respectfully, um, even if we don't agree. Uh, theologically. This is a good place to spring us into, um, you released this new book last month, uh, Truth Over Fear, Combating the Lies About Islam. And this is a deeply historical and theological work centered on bringing clarity and accuracy to um, such a volatile misunderstanding of the Islamic faith. And you wrote, religions are complex. The majority uh, the major religion traditions have stood the test of time, cannot be reduced to caricatures by outsiders or by insiders. You know, the misunderstanding of, of the Islamic faith has plagued the Western world. Um, what do you think are, are, are the most misunderstood characteristics of this faith and its people? That's a, that's a really good question. And let me clarify one thing. When you say it's deeply historical and theological, it, it is in the sense that it does provide a historical perspective and certainly theological frameworks and ways to look at things and wrestle with issues, but it is written in a way, and as people who get the book will see, there are over 30 uh, very strong endorsements from a, a quite a variety of scholars and clergy and um, ecumenical interfaith leaders, quite a lot of Baptists actually in that group as well. Uh, that it's very accessible. So it's not, it, it's intended really as a resource for clergy and congregations first and foremost, even though it's going to be used and it already is being used in classrooms and other settings. The problems, I think, run very deep. And, and let me just very quickly go back and say one of the dynamics related to Christian Muslim relations is the two largest religions in the world. Almost half the world's population would self identify with one of these two uh, religions. The problems go way back. Once Islam sort of grew and came out of Arabia and began to spread as a, a military force, a civilizational system, um, it was remarkably successful. And, and within 100 years, Muslims controlled everything from what is today India, Pakistan, all the way across uh, Persia, the Fertile Crescent, uh, Mesopotamia, Palestine, North Africa, up and all the way through Spain. Uh, this was the world had never seen anything like this. Uh, it was bigger than the Roman Empire, bigger than Alexander the Great and his successors, uh, enormously successful. So for people living particularly in Europe, uh, this is not quite the same at all for the people who are actually Christians living with Muslims all those 1,400 years now. But for people in Europe, Islam was seen as, as a threat. Uh, it's coming at us. And when you think about it, it's the only religious tradition that ever really threatened Christendom once the church grew beyond its sort of humble Jewish beginnings. Once it became the official religion of the state in the fourth century, uh, nothing really ever threatened it. I mean, Jews weren't going to make a big comeback and take over Christianity. Nobody was worried about Scandinavian mythology making a big dent um, 
or Native American traditions, African traditional religions. People might have heard of Hindus and Buddhists, but they never would have seen one. So there was really nothing that threatened Christianity or Christendom except for Islam. So that, I think, is woven sort of deep into the literature, into the perspective. You see it in Dante's Inferno. You see it in, in the writings of Luther, many others. Um, very much, this, this, is, this is something to be feared. This is coming at us, and it's successful. It's winning. So there's that deep-rootedness. I think the, the, the fears really exacerbate uh, pretty dramatically uh, with the Iranian Revolution and events beyond that, with the rise of these uh, various groups that are non-governmental groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Boko Haram and others that I talk about in the book. And uh, they, of course, grab a lot of attention, uh, as understandable, given the, the violence and extremism and horrific things that are being done by people who are claiming inspiration from Islam. And that exacerbates that fear. So that then manifests in, well, all Muslims are, are supposed to be killing the Jews and the Christians. Uh, most of us have had emails from an uncle or from a friend purporting to, you know, lay out the true goal of all Muslims is taking over the world or imposing Sharia law on all of us uh, or uh, the Quran tells them they're supposed to kill all the Christians and the Jews. Well, none of those things are even close to being true. Uh, and that's what I try to deal with or other things too. But those kinds of images and ideas that are saying basically be afraid, be very afraid all the time. Um, and there are a lot of politicians, there are a lot of pundits, a lot of preachers who are, uh, who are exacerbating that, fanning those flames into what we call Islamophobia, this sort of fear of Islam as something that's coming at us um, without really stopping to think, okay, well, what's the basis of this? Uh, yes, there are violent extremists, but the vast majority of Muslims are trying to live their lives normally um, and put food on the table and get ready for grandma's birthday party tomorrow night. They're doing what everybody else is doing, uh, both here and around the world. They're not trying to blow up something to take over anything else. But we don't see that because that doesn't get the headlines in the same sort of way. So that's part of the, the big key, I think, in, in a very real way, is helping people humanize the other. As long as you don't know Muslims and you hear these things, it's, it's uh, understandable that people are afraid. When you actually know human beings and realize, wait a minute, that's not, and I give a number of statistics in the book, as, as you know, uh, out of Oklahoma, this very traditional conservative state, Muslims make up less, less than 1% of the population, and yet they are uh, highly disproportionate in terms of medical professions. There, today, there are over 450 medical doctors, uh, Muslims, working in Oklahoma City, and there are 450 to 500 in Tulsa. Uh, there are more than 40 full-time faculty members at the University of Oklahoma and more than 40 Muslims who are full-time tenure-track faculty members at Oklahoma State University, for example. Um, accountants, uh, physicians, home builders, the largest home builders in Oklahoma are two Iranian brothers who were Muslims, very generous people in all kinds of ways. When you start to actually look and see, well, who are the Muslims? Uh, you know, they're your neighbors, they're your oncologists, they're your cardiologists. Uh, and, and so uh, that begins to demystify this and say, well, I don't know. I know hundreds of Muslims. I don't know a single one that wants Sharia to be the law of the land. Uh, and yet Oklahoma was the first state to 
pass a referendum in, in 2010 with a 70% plurality saying to ban Sharia law um, in Oklahoma. Well, I've spoken to over 100 clergy over the last almost decade now, and I found two who actually could define Sharia law. Uh, the typical response was, well, what do you think about this Sharia thing? And they say, oh, we're afraid of it, we're against it, don't want it. And I said, well, what is it specifically you're concerned about? Well, you know, Sharia. We don't want Sharia here. Okay, but what about, what is Sharia? What do you want? Well, Sharia, we just don't like it. <laughs> like, well, do you even know what it is? <laughs> no, but we're going to stop it at the Red River. You know, we don't want it coming into Oklahoma. Uh, so it's that level of fear without, you know, any substance behind it. But, you know, what they have in mind is something they saw the Taliban doing uh, with, of executing somebody or stoning somebody for adultery or whatever. Uh, yeah, these things are happening, but these are really on the extreme. This is not the way most Muslims believe in criminal punishment. Um, and it's, sort of, it's exposing and helping people see that kind of thing. Let me just finish that thought. When the Taliban was in power in Afghanistan in the 90s, only three governments in the world recognized them as legitimate. And that was Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the United Arab Emirates. Now, there are more than 55 countries in the world that have Muslim majorities. Most of the Muslims around the world thought those people were nuts. And yet that's the image that a lot of people have. Uh, the most extreme in Saudi Arabia falls in that very conservative school of Islamic law as it with corporal punishments and so forth. Um, it is a, it's a school, but it's not at all representative of most Muslims. And so, and yet that's where we get our images because we see the things that are violent and menacing and extreme. You know, the, the famous line in the media, I think does hold true. If it bleeds, it leads. And so, you know, thoughtful people discussing the problem is not news, but a kid with a bomb somewhere will be the first thing on the evening news. You know, the, the car wreck, the apartment building on fire, the shooting outside a bar, whatever it is, you know, that's dramatic, that's sensational. And so we tend to be drawn by the media to the most extreme things that people do. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. A few years back, I, I did an experiment with a theological conversation group, and I read the poetic passages from the Quran while reading militant, violent texts from the Old Testament. And I didn't mm. cite what I was reading, but simply asked the listeners to tell me if they thought the text was, uh, you know, of the Islamic faith or from the Judeo-Christian uh, scriptures. And 100% of the militant texts I read from the Old Testament were attributed to um, from the listeners as Islamic. You know, see, Americans have such a, 
a violent image of the Islamic faith, primarily based on, as you have said, caricatures from from outside and inside. Why do you think specifically American Christians tend to project such a violent image onto Islam while simultaneously, you know, looking past the violent history of the Christian tradition itself? Well, and I think, I think you can even flip it around. It's probably true of many Muslims uh, in reverse around the world. Uh, and I think part of the problem is, uh, lies here. The tendency of most people, most of us, is we think about our own religion in terms of its ideal and everybody else's religion in terms of its flawed lived reality. So uh, Jesus taught a gospel of love. I mean, I think most Christians would readily affirm that. But as a rabbi friend once pointed out rather pointedly, uh, 2,000 years of Christian love is almost more than we Jews can bear. Thank you very much. Well, if you look at the history of anti-Semitism, it certainly doesn't feel much like a gospel of love. Uh, So we tend to think about our own religion. Islam is a religion of peace. Well, that's literally what the term means. It's what it means to most Muslims submitting yourself to the will of God and being at peace. Of course, then you have to figure out, well, what is the will of God? And that's where the Quran and the example of the prophet and so forth come in. I spell that out in, I think, very understandable ways for people in the book. That's the, the self-perception. And, and yet, at the same time, uh, we see the violence and the extremism. Now, it used to be even more within Christianity. You had a lot of hostility across Protestant and Catholic lines, for example. Uh, horrific wars in Europe after the Protestant Reformation, which actually formed part of the backdrop for our own country. Our founders who debated these issues mightily saw what had happened, and they didn't want that kind of religious conflict and fighting in a different way. Um, so Jefferson, Madison, and others carved out uh, a new approach that for which we all should be very grateful. That that tries to separate, you know, religion from the state, and not have a state-imposed religion. Or some people are in, some people are out. That fear that is coming at us gets it comes at us from our, from literature, from history. As I say, it has these deep roots, uh, and you see this kind of extremism. And then when you get something, the lashing out, like you saw on September 11th, uh, 2001, when it's actually hitting home, it's not just somebody doing something halfway around the world, but it actually hits here, then that really ratchets up the fear. Or the, that's why I say the Iranian hostage crisis was the first major step, because here was a, uh, a revolutionary group of students uh, who took over the U.S. Embassy and held it hostage for 444 days. Um, that was very different than someone just blowing something up in China or Indonesia. Uh, and we look at that and say, wow, that was terrible. This was hitting us uh, in a different kind of way, and unfortunately, that's what you know terrorists do. They they're 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 looking for ways to draw attention to their cause by doing things that are out, just outrageous, attacking people at a movie theater or a concert, or you know a, a solo person driving a vehicle into a crowd of people in France or England or somewhere, uh, shooting up people at the airport and uh, you know in Belgium had several of these horrific examples that, of course, are terrifying, uh, just as we have a lot of mass shootings in our country that are terrifying. But people don't tend to lay that at the feet of Christianity, right? And there's, again, you see the difference. 
that if uh, when it's a, an extremist who is a Muslim and claiming inspiration from Islam, that gets attention. When people do things in this country, as happened time and time and time again, well, these are mentally unstable people. Um, you know, they're they're not well, or they're disgruntled for some other kind of reason. Uh, or sometimes you have white supremacists who actually are motivated more by their religion. It's a, it's a factor that's coming into play, but it doesn't get the same kind of attention. So I think there's a, a tendency, uh, and, and this is where, I mean, why the title of the book is Truth Over Fear. Fear is an extraordinarily powerful emotion. All you have to do is watch our politics, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, and see the way politicians play to people's fears. Be very afraid. I can fix it. I'm the one who will solve X, Y, or Z. Um, and if I don't get elected, you know, here's what's going to happen. And you see it all the time. It, it's effective uh, politically, and I think it's effective religiously for a lot of uh, for a lot of preachers as well. In the book you wrote, while there is no reason to assume that adherence in either religion will come to theological consensus on issues of particularity and pluralism, they should be able to agree on this. People of faith and goodwill must earnestly seek tangible ways to enhance peaceful coexistence and constructive cooperation in this dangerous world of the 21st century. I wonder if you would uh, take us a little deeper there. Sure. Uh, I think the, uh, I tell the story early in the book of an encounter with the Dean of Harvard Divinity School soon after I arrived. He was uh, delighted. He was a Lutheran and he became the Bishop of Stockholm to find a Baptist in me who was studying Islam and wanted to pursue uh, issues, of, issues of interfaith understanding cooperation. And he said, you know, you're, uh, he said, this is, this is what we need to do in response to the biblical mandates. And I rather naively said, uh, what could you say more about those biblical mandates? <laughs> and he said, well, first, you know, the ninth of the 10 commandments is do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, this is happening all the time. How can you help but bear false witness and tell untruths and misrepresent your neighbor when you don't know your neighbor or when much of what you think you know is incorrect? Um, second, you know, Jesus said very explicitly, certainly in Matthew and Luke, you have what's the greatest commandment? And he says to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In the Luke version, um, the, uh, the, the young man, the lawyer says, well, then who is my neighbor? Um, and he, Jesus then follows with the Good Samaritan. Third, Paul in Romans uh, when he's talking about the marks of the true Christian, concludes with, insofar as it is possible with you, live peaceably with everyone. So I think at the heart of Christianity is to be, you know, not bear false witness, to love God and love your neighbor, and your neighbor isn't just the people that look like you and agree with you, uh, and uh, to live insofar as it depends on us, to live peaceably with others. Particularly, I think, in the United States, and particularly at this very tumultuous time, in world history, we have an opportunity and a responsibility, especially I think as Americans, where we value religious freedom. We, we value people's right to say no to religion, if that's what you want to do, uh, that you are not going to have this imposed upon you. And we, we are a nation of diverse populations um, that we should be at the forefront of those trying to model what it looks like uh, to practice our faith freely, but be respectful of people who have different perspectives, 
as long as they're not harming other people, they're free to worship, you know, as they see fit or to say no to religion, if that's what they choose to do. Um, I think those are very, very solid Christian principles, biblical principles, uh, which we operate, uh, that we will not come to a theological agreement. That's as you let off that quotation. I don't expect in my lifetime that we're going to have a great deal of agreement between uh, sort of pluralist theology and inclusive theology, which is the official position of the Catholic Church, or the more traditional exclusivist uh, theology, um, or variations of those. And I think it's possible to be an authentic person of faith and have uh, come out in different places as to what we think. Ultimately, God is the one who judges and decides uh, who's right and wrong about this and that. But uh, we still wrestle with these questions and try to make sense of them. And uh, there's actually, a, uh, I think, a, a very nice quotation from the Quran that talks about religious diversity in this way. Uh, it's in the fifth chapter of the Quran. It says, if God had so willed, God would have created you one community. But God has not done so in order that God may test you. Therefore, compete with one another in good works. To God, you will all return, and God will sort out the truth about that which you've been disputing. So basically, in the context, is talking about Jews and Christians. Be the best Christian. Be the best Jew. Be the best Muslim you know how to be. Uh, compete with each other in good works. And then let God sort out, in the end, who's right about this, who's right about that. I think that's a very nice sort of image uh, to think about. So, And at a practical level, part of what I'm trying to communicate to people we are already doing this all the time, every day. We are cooperating across religious lines if we're dealing with an Ebola crisis or trying to solve the AIDS epidemic or uh, working on global environmental concerns or international business issues. We're already in a globalized context where we're working across religious lines to, to deal with health problems or environmental problems or you know, economic stability, et cetera. We need to be more intentional about doing this in our local communities across religious lines uh, because this is the world we're living in. These are the cities we're living in. And religion can be uh, that spark that provokes conflict uh, much easier than most anything else, where it's, it's used often to justify uh, conflict. We, I think the 21st century may well end up being defined by interfaith relations. If we don't learn how to live together with our differences, respectfully, um, we have an awful lot of ways that people can do great damage. You know, a lot of weapons of mass destruction, a lot of problems can be created, and it doesn't take very many people, zealots, to do that from any religious community. George Bernard Shaw uh, wrote the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that has actually taken place. You know, as we talk about misunderstanding, we know that communication is one of the best ways to reconcile it. So what are the practical ways that our listeners, whether clergy or lady, can build a communication bridge with people of Islamic faith in their community? The last two chapters of uh, Truth Over Fear uh, lay out a lot of what's already been done by the Catholic Church, which is by far the largest group of Christians in the world, but also many of the Protestant denominations as well. There's a great deal of energy that's gone into in the last couple of centuries, but especially in the last 50 years, to constructive interfaith engagement and cooperation, understanding and cooperation. 
And so part of what I do in that next to the last chapter is say, you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot that can be learned by what we've already seen, uh, developed and experimented with and refined and so forth. Then the last chapter really speaks specifically about the kinds of things that we can do as individuals and congregations. And there are any number of uh, things that I, I list there that aren't going to solve the global challenges, but can make a real difference in local communities. Uh, this ranges from education and dialogue programs. Uh, I'm speaking at an event in Tulsa in a few weeks. Uh, it's called Open Tables. They've been doing this for 15 years. Uh, the Methodist, uh, downtown Methodist Church started, but now you have a Hindu temple and uh, the Jewish synagogue and temple, uh, the mosque. In fact, the event's at the mosque in Tulsa where people are invited, hundreds of people come together, they bring a dish that's kind of representative of their home of origin or their grandparents where they came from, whatever. And people just meet, they talk to their neighbors and eat different food and get to know each other. And they just call this open tables. And it happens three times a year. Uh, we now have a lot of iftars, uh, gatherings, interfaith iftars, which are the breaking of the fast during the month of Ramadan very much like uh, a lot of listeners, I think, would probably have participated in a Passover Seder. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, during the time of Passover, there are often uh, synagogues and uh, Hillel houses and so forth. They'll host interfaith Seders, uh, invite non-Jews in to learn more about the Passover meal and this tradition within Judaism. It humanizes the tradition and you meet your neighbors and so forth. This is happening a lot with the uh, iftars of Ramadan, uh, if you open your eyes and look around, um, mosques are happy to invite people in. There's interfaith study tours. In Oklahoma City, they just completed one where about 500 youth from different churches uh, went around in several weekends in a row where they visited a mosque, a Jewish uh, synagogue, the uh, Hindu temple, and a Buddhist uh, gathering place in Oklahoma City, so they would learn more about these different religions and where they are, what it looks like, who are some of the leaders, who are the kids, et cetera, uh, things like that. These are very practical ways that people can actually begin to engage one another. And then there are all kinds of ways to cooperate all over the country. This is happening where you have uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims in local congregations come together to build a Habitat for Humanity house. Uh, what they're doing is saying we don't necessarily agree on who Jesus was. Uh, but we do think it's important to be working for those and providing housing for people who are in need. And so uh, let's work together. And in the process, people get to know each other. They get to engage one another, and they see that it's important for Muslims to be helping people who are in need of assistance. Uh, it's important for Jews. It's important for Christians. You don't have to have theological agreement to do that anymore. And this was the example I was using before. It would be inconceivable to me that a, a Southern Baptist from Atlanta and a, a Jew from Boston and a Muslim research physician from Pakistan working at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta would come together and say, well, I'm sorry, we just can't work together on uh, Ebola or AIDS because uh, we don't agree about Jesus, right? No, the issue is a uh, medical problem that they're dealing with. And so they bring the best of who they are but it wouldn't occur to them they can't cooperate to work on a common problem uh, because they have a different religious worldview. So that's the sort of thing, and the chapter deals with, offers a number of 
specific kinds of things like that. There are book clubs. There's a, a book that came out a few years ago called The Faith Club, which provide a nice example of three women, a Jew, Christian, and Muslim, who began just meeting together and talking with each other once a week over coffee. Uh, people can do things like that if they are willing to, you know, take a step. Uh, and that then can lead to you can communicate with others of what you're doing. One of the things I, I try to emphasize wherever I talk, and I put this in the book as well, when people do something like build a habitat house or work on a, a common problem in their community, make an effort to connect with the, the local television stations, get some coverage, get some good news. Uh, news stations are always looking for some good news stories. And so help put a face uh, on here are the Christians from such and such Baptist church and such and such Methodist church working with the Islamic Center and Temple Israel to do X and get a visual of those people uh, working together. It, it challenges those stereotypes that somehow uh, we're always at each other's throat and it's dangerous even to be in the presence of a Muslim. Uh, those are the kinds of things that when you really start looking at it, and I lay out a lot of things that have been done and can be done, uh, so that people don't just have to throw up their hands and say, well, what can I do? I'm just one person. Well, it turns out you can do a lot. Uh, it turns out your congregation can actually do a lot. And part of what happens in that process is you're communicating to people who are in the minority, who are already feeling estranged, persecuted. Sometimes they're getting threats. They're getting derogatory things said at them. They're death threats at the, and, and, you know, uh, thing, vandalism at the mosque and so forth. You're reaching out to your neighbor and saying, no, you know, you're welcome here. Uh, and I want to understand and, you know, help you be able to practice your faith as you see fit. Um, I think those things uh, are foundational for Christians when we just stop to think about it and sort of move beyond the fear and humanize the other. And some of these things come into focus pretty clearly. If you want to stay connected with Dr. Kimball, you can visit charles-kimball.com. Go out and purchase Truth Over Fear wherever books are sold. Charles, thank you for inviting us to love our neighbor by actually getting to know our neighbor, their story, and the faith that informs their journey. And thank you for reminding us that perfect love drives out all fear. Thank you, Andy. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsor's website, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.